This is Africa Digest. Hey, good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Broadcasting from Johannesburg, we are on the frequency 15235 kHz on the 31-meter band to West Africa. I'm Onilin Tinti, standing in for Supumelele Zondi. With me running the show this evening is Sandra Matzaunyana, Tebiso Luhoko and Mosibudi Makura. On your top stories on Africa Digest, this hour, Tanzania's government CCM party candidate John Magufuli wins the presidential elections by 58%. The UN High Commission for Refugees in the Democratic Republic of Congo closes its office in Lubumbashi. And in your sports news, Sheikh Mashaba announces his squad to face Angola in the 2018 World Cup qualifier. But first, the news with Asanda. Good evening. Tanzania's ruling party's John Pombe Magufuli has been declared winner of this year's presidential elections after he garnered 8.8 million of the total votes cast against his main opponent, Dr. Edward Luwasa, who managed 6 million votes. Magufuli, with 58% of the total votes cast, will now become Tanzania's fifth president, succeeding Jakaya Kikwete, who retires after 10 years in office. Damien Lubuva, Tanzania's National Electoral Commission chairman, has made the announcement. Meanwhile, foreign embassies in Tanzania have expressed concern after the semi-autonomous Zanzibar archipelago annulled polls over irregularities. Zanzibar's Electoral Commission on Wednesday said the vote on the Indian Ocean Islands must be carried out again, citing violations of electoral law. Opposition parties have also alleged rigging in Sunday's presidential general and local elections seen as the hardest-fought polls in the East African nation. Rescue workers have recovered five more bodies in the Mediterranean, raising the death toll from Tuesday's helicopter crash, carrying two senior officials from the Tripoli government in Libya from 14 to 19. Tripoli's rival, the internationally recognized government based in eastern Tobruk, has denied responsibility for the attack. They had claimed responsibility a day earlier. Libya has fallen into chaos since the 2011 toppling and killing of long-time leader Muammar Gaddafi with two warring governments vying for control. The helicopter was shot down near the coastal Almaya area west of Tripoli. The University of Namibia has described media reports that it would increase student fees by 15% in 2016 as false and speculative. University spokesperson John Haufuki says a decision as to whether to increase or not is still under discussion by the council and will only be announced on the 1st of December. Hafiku says increases are normally prompted by inflation, operations and expansion plans. We anticipate an increase, but the final decision is with council. We, we expect an increase, but council might decide that there is no increase, or they might decide that the increase is much higher or much lower than what is being uh, given. So right now, that's why I'm saying we can't really preempt anything. All we can say is what is looking at the trend from previous years. There's been an increment every year. 
United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon says good governance is essential to combat terrorism. Ban was speaking at a conference in Madrid on preventing and countering violent extremism. A March 2004 terrorist attack in the Spanish capital killed 191 people and wounded 1,800 more. Ban outlined a plan of action to address the factors behind violent extremism. The extremist groups often paint themselves as an alternative to poor governance and corruption in the justice sector, in the security sector, and across all state institutions. We must strengthen these areas as a preventive measures to stop the spoilers of peace from holding sway over underserved and neglected populations. I'm convinced that good governance is essential to countering terrorism in the long term. Your news here on Channel Africa with me, Asanda Matsaunyani. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Looking at our first story tonight, the Burundi ruling party, CNDDFDD, gets things tough in Burundi by attacking the Commission for Peace and Security of the African Union for its recent statement calling for inclusive dialogue and advocating for a military mission in Burundi. The CNDDFDD party says the Commission has shown it will deny the rights of Burundians to safeguard their sovereignty. The party also accuses the former colonial power Belgium of influencing the international community, including the African Union, to disturb their country. Bennett Bankukera reports from Pujumbura. In a statement read by the party spokesman Daniel Jelazendavirabe on this Wednesday evening, the ruling CNDFTD party openly accused the Peace and Security Council of the African Union of wanting to impede on the sovereignty of Burundi. Mr. Ndabirabe blames the African Commission of wanting to discredit the recent elections, which, according to him, were conducted in the most transparent way. The CNDD-FDD party was unpleasantly surprised to hear from the Commission for Peace and Security of the African Union in its statement of October 17, 2015, following its 551st meeting on Burundi, denied the UN Charter on Freedom of the Peoples to Govern Themselves and set the instruments of government in accordance with the wishes of the people concerned. It is not understandable that just a few days after the elections conducted in the calm and wisdom which occurs nowhere in the world, the people of Burundi are still attacked once again by an African organization by ordering them to give up their sovereignty and forget the results of the 2015 elections to be forced to sit with coup plotters in Kampala, Uganda. Burundi is on international pressure to organize inclusive dialogue among all political stakeholders including opposition leaders who fled the country, some of them wanted by the judiciary. 
the CNDF to depart blames the former colonial power, Belgium, to exercise neo-colonialism and influence the international community against the country. The CNDF to depart regrets that efforts by some Belgians and Europeans do not reinforce the Burundian people in their determination to safeguard and protect their sovereignty because it is obvious that the overwhelming and disgusting neo-colonialism is running against the people. The dialogue that these destructive forces want to impose on us in Kampala is nothing else than the refusal to Burundian people to exercise their legitimate rights to choose their institutions freely. The country is indeed in a decolonization struggle. The CNDF to depart urges the people of Burundi to carry on with their fight against the neocolonialism from Belgium and its supporters. To organize the dialogue as they want, but knowing that the other party who is in front is Belgium, nothing more. The CNDF to depart does not bear the demand of the Peace and Security Council of the African Union to send a military force in the country for the party. The force should be sent to Rwanda, accused by the government of Burundi of hosting and training rebels who are planning to launch attack in Burundi. The to depart is also outraged by the threat of the Commission for Peace and Security of the African Union, which seeks to send military forces in Burundi as if the country was in war. It is ridiculous as far as the Burundian people just exercised their right of sovereignty. Burundi also accepted an international investigation to verify the allegations of Rwanda on the presence of Nchirahame on Burundian territory. The commission of the ICGLR has released results showing that no Nchirahame on Burundian territory. But when it came to send an international commission in Rwanda to verify the existence of training and recruitment of terrorists in Burundian camps on its territory, the Rwandan authorities responded promptly that they do not accept this mission in their country. The African Union and the European Union have remained silent. Why this complicity? The CNDF to depart is outraged and demand these EU forces to be sent inside Rwanda and exactly where the Rwandan authorities have placed the training camps and recruitment of terrorists to dismantle them, oversee whether or no terrorists enter Burundian territory and order Kigali not to interfere in internal affairs of Burundi but instead deal with its own problems that are numerous Enough. As a reminder, the African Union Peace and Security Council issued a statement on October 17th this year over the growing insecurity and violence in Burundi, as well as the increased cases of human rights abuses. The Council went up to deciding to impose targeted sanctions against all figures impeding on the search for a solution to the current electoral crisis in Burundi that broke out in April 2015 following the announcement of President Pierre Nkurunziza as a flag-bearer of the ruling party in the recent presidential elections. The decisions were strongly rejected by the government of Burundi, which remains determined to organize internal talks, excluding the opposition and civil society leaders living in exile. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Mankukira reporting from Bujumbura. The UN High Commission for Refugees in the Democratic Republic of Congo has decided to close its office in Lobumbashi in the former province of Katanga. This happens while there is still a significant number of both refugees and internally displaced people in that part of the southeastern DRC. The UNHCR believes they will be assisted by the government since their number is smaller than it was before. Jenoba Mweza reports from Kinshasa. 
More than 5,000 refugees from both Burundi and Rwanda as well as internally displaced people are still living in that former province of Katanga in the southeast of the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's indeed what the provincial government has said while expressing concerns about the decision the United Nations High Commission for Refugees has taken. Provincial authorities also emphasized that the refugee and internally displaced people camps are not empty. The deputy governor of the former Katanga province, Yafchibal, has described the UNHCR decision as a very bad one and questions the reasons why the UN Refugee Agency has taken such a decision while those refugees and internally displaced people are always in need of assistance. But according to the UNHCR, the closing of its office in Lubumbashi has been decided after Angolan refugees registered to return home and a tripartite meeting that brought together authorities from Angola, DRC and UNHCR realized that there is no more presence of Angolan refugees here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The UNHCR described the current time as a very limited humanitarian resources warranted needed to have its activities focused on other parts. Although the UN agency has agreed there are still refugees and internally displaced people in that part of the country. These people will then be taken care of by this country's authorities, especially the National Commission for Refugees, since it's the government responsibility that's supported by the UN, according to the UNHCR spokesperson here, Andrea Kirkov. The office in Lubumbashi was closely linked to the presence of Angolan refugees. Now, following a tripartite meeting some time ago, the registration of Angolan refugees for return has been officially closed and these people have returned. Uh, the refugee numbers in the area is now much smaller than before so we need in a time of very limited humanitarian resources we need to focus our activities on other parts of the country. The um, refugees will continue to be supported by the government which uh, bears the primary responsibility to take care of refugees and uh, UNHCR certainly even if it is not present directly in the area will not uh, turn its back on the refugees. Most of Burundians who have found asylum in the former province of Katanga fled the country due to insecurity situation that followed the electoral process in Burundi before and after President Pierre Nkurunziza was elected for a third time in the office. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. You're still listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on the frequency 15235 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to West Africa and on DSTV audio bouquet 902. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango.
Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The Electoral Commission in the Central African Republic has announced that the presidential and parliamentary elections will be held on the 13th of December. The polls were initially to have been held on October 18, but were postponed in part due to violence in the capital. The elections are intended to usher in a government with authority to restore order in one of Africa's most turbulent states and pave the way for the departure of UN and French peacekeepers. Central African Republic has plunged into turmoil in 2000. 13, when Muslim rebels from an umbrella group called Seleka seized power in the majority Christian country. To discuss this further, we have on the line Cheikh Achu, research specialist in the Peace and Security Unit of the African Institute of South Africa. Welcome to Channel Africa. My pleasure. Uh, now, going straight to the point, do current conditions allow for conducive elections in the country? Not at all, not at all. I think some of the basic issues that were set down by the by the uh, Economic Commission of Central African States, such as the, the return of um, of peace, security, and reintegration of uh, displaced people, especially around the center around Bangui, uh, actually have actually not been implemented. The, the the entire northern part of the country is still under the control of Seleka. And uh, part of uh, the eastern region of the country is also under the control of the Lord's Resistance Army. So to talk of election at this time is uh, is actually unfortunate because, you know, the elections will probably only take place around Bangui, which will not actually be a representation, or the results would actually not be a representation of the wishes of the Central African people. Understanding also the, the note that you have just made, is there any hope rather that the elections will pave the way for peace in CRR? Definitely not, because um, uh, what what we realize is that an election will definitely it's it's not it, it it might legitimize the the president in the face of the international community, but the fact is, will that particular president receive the support of the people on the ground? We talk these days of local voices of people who uh, you know that the legitimacy of a particular of any political leader of any leader and on the African country should come from the people. But if this particular election has to take place today, you know, without the necessary condition being put in place to actually guarantee a, a, a free, fair, and transparent election, one would actually want to think that, you know, that the elections will definitely not bring about peace because it will actually not be, or the person that will be elected would actually not be representing the majority of the people in the Central African Republic. Possibly because the majority of these people are still 
in the rural areas, and these rural areas are still being controlled by the Seleka rebels and by the North Resistance Army. So definitely, one would say elections will definitely not bring peace in the central capital. Mm. Now, in August, a transitional council adopted a new constitution, which will be put in a referendum one week before the elections. Is it likely to be adopted by the main political groups? I think one, 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 of, the, one of the important issues to look at is, like I mentioned, the issue of the referendum of the new constitution. And the fact is, this particular referendum was supposed to be put to the, to the electorate after all the actors in 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 central Africa republic have actually agreed on but as we've seen in the last few months you know there have been some kind of this on how the particular process should take place and recently you know a you know the the the, the major political in that particular term in the country actually voiced the concern about some of the clauses in the in in the constitution so one will actually want to look at the the issue Different angle from the fact that you know, uh, besides this, the 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 economic control Central African state, you know, one should actually look at how the African Union can actually intervene in bringing the political elite in the Central African Republic on the same table in order to look at how the constitution can, should look like. And I think um, the the fact is most of the, the for example, the the the, the leader of uh, the the chairperson, the current chairperson of the Central Africa of the economic Central Africa State, the president of Chad, uh, who is leading the process, has actually been accused of, be, of having a, uh, you know, uh, of not being very, uh, of, of having, you know, interest in the Central African public conflict. So he is not receiving the necessary support that, that a, a, you know, a neutral or a facilitator is supposed to have. So those are some of the challenges which I think that the African Union is supposed to handle or in supposed to make sure that some of these uh, differences are not, you know, in, within the negotiation table so as for this referendum to actually take place. But I think with the present situation, and, uh, you, know, you know, arising from the fact that the president of Chad, who is also the head of the uh, ICAS, is actually not very much welcome in Central African Republic, it's, it's a major concern. It's a major concern. And finally, sir, before we let you go, what would you say are some of the challenges that still need to be tackled in the Central African Republic? I think the first thing is how do we restore security? How do we restore security? How do we bring the people? How do we some sort of like bring the Christians, bring the Muslims to start talking, to start talking? You know, those are... That is the main issue. How do you reach the rural areas of the small arms that have been uh, that have been proliferated? All these various arms groups operating in the region. So I think for me the major challenge at this moment is how do we get rid of the armed groups that are operating in the Central African Republic. Well, as we've seen, the UN force are unable to do that. The French forces are also unable to do that. How then do we do this? Shouldn't we now go back to the multidisciplinary approach, you know, of looking at what are some of the causes of this particular conflict? How can we uh, address the challenges of poverty, the challenges of, uh, the challenge of unemployment, you know, access to uh, uh, health, access to, to clean water. Shouldn't 
some of these issues be at the topmost or should be the priority of the international community at the moment instead of looking at how you know the security situation should be handled so i think for me the, the main issue is the security issue but again you know why is security security is as a result of the lack of the basic needs of the people of the central africa okay so some of these uh, 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 the security issue must be tackled from a multi you know dimensional approach in order for us to have a peaceful resolution to the conflict in the central africa republic thank you sir for giving us your time here on channel africa thank you that was Chekachu, a research specialist in the Peace and Security Unit of the African Institute of South Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Former Rwandan General Faustine Kayumba Nyamwasa says they are trying to make a peaceful change in Rwanda through dialogue and negotiations. He has formed the Rwanda National Congress for Rwandans in Exile. The former general is currently leaving in South Africa after falling out with his former ally, Rwandan President Paul Kagame. He fled to South Africa in 2010 after surviving an assassination attempt in the same year. He has been accused of committing war crimes in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo while serving as a general in the Rwandan Patriotic Army. He spoke exclusively to Channel Africa's Ntlaitla Mashangu. Well, the charges stem from the war that we had in uh, between 1990 and 1994, whereby, you know, we had the war, then there was a genocide. Uh, some people ran away from the government at that time, and when they went out of the country, they just made charges against some of us who were in leadership at that time. But currently, uh, those charges have been found to be fabricated, and uh, they were thrown out here in the courts of law in South Africa. They have been thrown out in the courts in uh, in Spain and also in France. So literally, we are innocent. Uh, well, those were mainly politically motivated charges that normally come out when there is a victor, there is a vanquished, and the vanquished, all they do is that they sometimes go to courts of law and bring about uh, fabricated charges. But interesting, interestingly, they had never been tested. But now when they were brought to be tested in a court of law, they have all fallen out and completely collapsed. Now, there's a trend in Africa where, you know, presidents want to prolong their stay in office. I know yesterday uh, the parliament in Rwanda was supposed to debate and discuss whether that constitution will be passed in the country whereby um, President Paul Kagame is seeking another term in office. Just personally, what do you make of this trend? And also just the fact that, you know, Mr. Paul Kagame still wants to retain, you know, his seat in the office. Well, that is the tragedy that is revisiting Africa. You remember in the 1970s and 1980s, we were fighting uh, military regimes at that time. Currently, we are now fighting uh, constitutional dictatorships, which are also not different from the military regimes. In the case of Rwanda, Paul Kagame has been a president uh, effectively since 1994. 
Even when President Bizimungu was president and he was vice president, he was effectively the leader of that country. So he overthrew Pastor Bizimungu in the year 2000. And uh, we had elections in 2003, uh, whereby, and also a constitution, and uh, he has been in power since that time. So effectively, he has been in power for the last uh, 21 years. And now he wants to change the constitution so that he can stand again inde indefinitely. And uh, this is a tragedy because, remember, Rwanda is a country and uh, uh, the government now is born out of war and the genocide. And um, there was a reason why people went to war. In 1991, we thought uh, Rwanda was a, a dictatorship. And people had to go and try to establish a democracy and have a rule of law. We thought it would be able to stop the question of uh, refugees, improve the economy, and also make sure that the country is governed by the rule of law. Now, all that is now being thrown throughout the window by just uh, having another dictatorship, having another man who's going to be in power indefinitely. Now, Rwanda misses the chance of ever having peaceful change of government. We've never had peaceful change of government in Rwanda since uh, time of Mario, because Rwanda was a monarchy. Then eventually the monarchy was overthrown. The people who overthrew the monarchy also perpetuated themselves in power. They were also later overthrown by a military regime. That military regime was also overthrown by a war and the genocide in 1994. And now Kagame wants to continue the same trend. So we are, it's very, very tragic that uh, people had to go to war. We lost a lot of communities. We had people who died civilians. And now Kagame wants to perpetuate himself in power. And one wonders, how do we ever obtain peaceful change of government in Rwanda? I know that you've been here in South Africa since 2010 and chances are should you go back to Rwanda you know there's a likelihood that you could face persecution but do you ever long to go back to Rwanda Well you see currently a lot of Rwandans are running to exile uh, since I left uh, in 2010 tens of thousands of Rwandans have run to exile in various countries in Europe and also uh, within the neighboring countries so essentially the situation is not safe for anybody now, now that I'm talking to you and I'm telling you all these things, in Rwanda this is considered a crime. Because if I talk to you like this, the Rwandan government would accuse me threatening the state, uh, spreading rumors, threatening the president, and I would be charged. Indeed, we wrote a document in 2010 and entitled uh, Rwanda Briefing. On the basis of Rwanda Briefing, we were charged in absentia and sentenced to prison for 24 years just for airing our political views. So this kind of interview alone is a, a crime in Rwanda, and that's why a lot of journalists have been killed. Uh, most of them have run into exile, and we don't have a free media in Rwanda. And that's why even the changing of the constitution currently is taking place in Rwanda, you don't see any criticism in the country because journalists have either been silenced, killed, or run into exile. So, like you asked me if I went to Rwanda, yes, I would be charged just for making this kind of interview. And uh, in Rwanda, this is a crime. I'm now committing a crime by talking to you. So now that you're here in South Africa, are you still active in politics? Well, yes, we, we are trying to make a, a peaceful change uh, in Rwanda and trying to change the politics in the country. I belong to an organization called the Rwanda National Congress. And we believe in a peaceful change of government. 
we are very much aware that uh, violence has not brought any peace into Rwanda and we are trying to change the way things should be done. We engage other political parties who are in exile and we also engage our people who are in Rwanda and in the region to find a way of how we can both have peaceful change of government in Rwanda through dialogue and negotiations. That was former Rwandan General Faustin Kayumba Nyamwasa speaking exclusively to Channel Africa's Ntlantla Mashango. Up next, a news with Asanda. Good evening. Tanzania's ruling party's John Pombe Magufuli is declared winner of this year's presidential elections after he garnered 8.8 million of the total votes cast. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to appoint German diplomat Martin Kobler to head a struggling peace effort in Libya. And the Eritrean diaspora says the granting of 10 Eritrean soccer players asylum by the Botswana government is an indictment of the dire situation in the East African state. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest. Second, there's always a breaking story. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Zimbabwe is fast losing the battle against cyanide poisoning as poachers continued killing elephants this week. At least 20 bodies of elephants were discovered this week in Hungary, bringing the total to nearly 60 jimbos in one month. The poisoning this month has exposed the cash-straped Zimbabwean government over its wildlife security and conservation policy. In 2013, a similar incident occurred and 300 jumbos died in Hungary, leading to the ban of the export of Zimbabwean trophies to to the United States of America. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Cyanide could be a key substance in gold processing in the Zimbabwean mines, but over the past few years, the Harare administration has been battling with its usage in elephant poisoning in sanctuaries. Although the killings have spread to all national parks of the country, Wange National Park, the largest in the country, has suffered the worst effects. Just in one month, in October this year, nearly 60 elephants were poisoned with the latest bodies discovered this week. 20 bodies were discovered this week, casting a shadow of doubt if the government was winning the battle against chemical poaching. However, Opam Chinguri, Environment Minister responsible for the country's wildlife, blames the increased poaching on the West. So we believe as Zimbabwe, if we are allowed to do sport hunting in a transparent way, sustainable way, it will allow now those poachers to realize that there will be activity within the national parks itself uh, because of these hunts. Uh, They will also appreciate that uh, these tasks can be available through jewelry or some other form. As long as we are controlling the sharing or the purchasing or enjoyment of these tasks, then we have a problem. So banning has not helped. There is more, now it's actually encouraging more poaching. The discovery of 20 bodies this week comes barely a week after three people were arrested at the Harare International Airport with stolen tasks. Early this month, four parks and wildlife workers were found guilty of stealing the elephant tusks, suggesting the poisoning could be an inside job, Muchinguri explained. Regrettably, because of the stance of the United States, which has been decampaigning us or decampaigning uh, sport hunting, which, by the way, is legal uh, in Zimbabwe, and so that decampaigning has resulted in the ban of uh, airlines not accepting trophies uh, that accrue as a result of, uh, of these uh, legal hands. So the fact that we are not getting uh, hunters coming to Zimbabwe has really reduced also our resource base. However, Zimbabweans have called for transparency regarding how the most dangerous substance, cyanide, is imported and handled. Hunters and conservationists blame the cyanide poisoning to wildlife officials working with poachers, making it a national security threat.
Economic activity has weakened markedly in sub-Sahara Africa and the strong growth momentum of recent years has dissipated in several countries. In its latest regional economic outlook for sub-Sahara Africa, the International Minority Fund puts growth at 3.75% this year, lower than in 2009 in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Co-author of the economic outlook, Celine Allard, says, lower commodity prices and tighter financing are key factors. On the one hand, oil importers uh, in the region will continue to face very favorable conditions and they'll continue to grow briskly. But on the other hand, uh, the eight oil exporters in the region have been hit very hard. And because they have limited buffers, they will have to undertake fiscal adjustment. And that fiscal adjustment will weigh on their gross outlook. So for them, we have actually revised down gross by about 2.5% for this year compared to what we were projecting in October. So it's a mixed bag. But what about the strong U.S. dollar? Uh, is that having a, an effect, on, uh, especially for those countries who have a high level of external debt? Is that a concern now? So you're absolutely right that the dollar has been appreciating uh, quite substantially across many of the currencies in the region. It has appreciated against the euro, and a lot of countries are actually pegged to the euro. So they've seen their currency uh, depreciate against the dollar. Uh, but we've also seen other currency depreciate. Now, uh, on the positive side, it kind of mitigate the impact in domestic currency of the fall of the commodity prices. That uh, expressing local currency... Uh, For example, the price of oil has not declined as much as in dollars. Uh, That helps also mitigate the impact on the public finances uh, of those countries. Now, on the less positive side, uh, stronger dollars means also that imports are going to be more expensive. And in particular, um, infrastructure investment um, has usually a very large import content, which means that higher price of import will probably mean slower investment effort, infrastructure investment for the region, and that's going to weigh on on growth. Now, you also pointed um, the impact of a stronger dollar on uh, debt service, and this is indeed not a very good development for countries that have a high share of their debt uh, in foreign denominated. Uh, So some uh, frontier market are actually going to have a higher debt service. And we're also monitoring the impact it might have on banks' balance sheet as well. The report also looks at Africa's growing population and, more importantly, the um, tremendous workforce expansion that's going to happen in the coming years. Uh, Is that going to benefit the the continent or or, uh, is uh, having to provide, you know, what's estimated as, as being like 18 million jobs Uh, per year for the next 20 or 25 years. Is that a potential problem for the continent? So you're right that uh, the region is on the cusp of a very significant demographic transition uh, as um, fertility rate declines but also mortality rate declines. So uh, we expect that in the next 20 years or so, the number of new entrants in the labor force, young men and women uh, getting ready to work in sub-Saharan Africa, will be larger than that number for the rest of the world 
combine. So this is indeed something very, very large uh, for the region. Um, it can bring a lot of opportunities. And uh, in, in our report, we look in more detail in experiences in other regions that have experienced that kind of transition, Latin America and East Asia in the 60s, 70s. And what we see is that with the right policy, there can indeed be a very large demographic dividends, uh, meaning that that can help lift growth and living standards for the people in the region. That said, it is not going to be automatic. So with the right policy, it can mean a dividend, but you're right to point that if economic growth is not going to be there, it can also be a, a big concern for all these people who would be unemployed in the region. And and what about uh, what is the role of uh, trade? Uh, the report also talks of increasing trade in the region and and uh, exports, uh, as well as uh, th- these uh, global value chains. Um, how could uh, the continent uh, take advantage of that that opportunity? Uh, what would it take? So. We indeed look uh, in great detail in um, trade integration of the region in the global economy. And we find that the region has indeed grown a lot. I mean, its ties with the global economy have grown tremendously over the last 20 years. It's partly a story about commodity, but it's not all about commodities. And we've seen countries manage to increase their export even when they don't have uh, a lot of commodity that they export. Uh, And however... Uh, when we look in more detail at trade flows in the region compared to elsewhere in the region, we do find that they tend to trade much less than elsewhere. So we see there, too, a very large potential to expand uh, trade with the rest of the world, trade within the region, um, and we do see a role for global value chain. So now, what are those global value chains? Um, There are this supply chains that have developed across the world where uh, the production process is slid in small pieces and every country adds a little bit of value added before exporting to other countries. Now, elsewhere in the world, um, in Europe around Germany or in Asia around China and Japan, we've seen a lot of countries develop those uh, value chains and benefit a lot in terms of growth and in terms of uh, living standards. So we think that Africa could also uh, jump into the global value chain wagon and benefit a lot from that. Now, you're asking what it would take to do that. So we look in more details at the policy levers that could help that. And indeed, we do find that infrastructure is the main impediment to, uh, to trade development because it takes much more in terms of cost to ship goods and services uh, away from the country to uh, other other places. We also find, uh, unsurprisingly, that uh, business climate can be, if it's not conducive to, uh, to business, can be an impediment, um, rule of law, access to credit, and, of course, tariffs as well. I mean, tariffs remain relatively high in the region, and by lowering them, you could get some potential for additional trade. There's also the ongoing issue since 2014. There's been an increase in the level of violence in several countries, especially Nigeria and uh, more recently South Africa with uh, the attacks on foreign workers there. Is the level of violence uh, having an impact on on, uh, the economy of the region? So you're right that insecurity can remain, I mean, has remained prevalent in some countries in the region. Although I, I would like to stress that uh, over the last 20 years, we have seen a decline in the number of conflicts in the region. 
Now, even having said that, uh, the current elements and, and instance of violence that we see in the in the region are indeed having a very huge cost in the humanitarian level, and it also can weigh uh, on the economy. And that's true for um, the security-related risk that we've seen come back to the forefront in the Sahel region, in Kenya, and as you point out more recently, some uh, xenophobic events uh, in in South Africa. And that was Celine Allard, head of the Regional Studies Division in the International Minority Funds African Department. She was speaking to Bryce Edward. Up next is Tabiso Lehogo with your economics news. Thanks, Onele. Executives from South African telecom company MTN are meeting with Nigerian authorities to discuss a 5.2 billion US dollar fine imposed on the group after it failed to disconnect subscribers with unregistered SIM cards. Africa's largest mobile operator said on Monday uh, the Nigerian Communications Commission imposed a fine on MTN Nigeria over the timing of the disconnection of 5.1 million subscribers in August and September. Senior government officials, MTN South African officials and the telecom regulator will attend the meeting. Total exports of Nigerian crude oil are expected to remain largely stable in December, putting more downward pressure on prices as the fight for Buyer intensifies among producers of light sweet crudes. Nigeria's export plan for December includes a total of at least 56.29 million barrels of oil. The latest Bank Serve Africa Disposable Salary Index, BDSI, indicates that average salary growth in South Africa has declined slightly to 6.6% in September as the larger back pay of civil servant salary increases abated. The average disposable salary was about nine US dollars lower than August, reaching about one thousand dollars for September two thousand and fifteen. Chief Economist at Economist.coza, Mike Schusler. Banks of Africa is able to measure take home pay or pay that is put into your bank account. And what we can't measure is what is taken off a clorier level. We do know that would be taxes, most pensions and probably most medical aids, but in some cases it can be garnishing orders and the like. The South African Communication Workers' Union has since said it is time for Postal and Communications Minister Sebonga Kwele to step down as he has failed to solve problems ravaging the parastatal. Clive Mervyn is the president of the union. The previous board wasted 2.1 billion francs, corruption, misappropriation of funds, failing to account for money. Today, as we are speaking to you, the post office cannot even present an annual report. And if you don't have an annual report, it, how does the minister and the treasury of finance help the organization if there's no accountability? In actual fact, we must be very clear. We want the bailout. We want a proper CEO to be appointed, not booty booty chomi chomi. We want the person who will come and fix the business. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.64 in South Africa, 10.37 in Botswana, 12.26 in Zambia, 6.5 British pound, 9.0 euro, 
Gold one one five two dollars, a platinum nine nine three dollars an ounce. Brand crude oil for eight dollars seven nine cents a barrel. Time now for the show continues. And up next, we have Masabudi Makura with your sports news. Thank you, Nello. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with football news, South Africa's Bafana Bafana head coach Efraim Sheikhs Mashaba has announced a 25-man squad to face Angola in back-to-back clashes for round two of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Russia qualifiers. The first clash will be an away leg to be played on Friday the 13th of November at the Ombaka National Stadium in Bengula, Angola. Mashaba has recalled the bulk of the squad that did duty in the recent tour of Central America where they defeated Costa Rica 1-0 and drew 1-0 with Honduras. Angola is ranked 97th in the world and 26th on the continent, compared to South Africa's 73rd in the world and 17th, and 17th respectively. Bafana Bafana will assemble for camp on Sunday. So on football news, the Golden Eagles of Nigeria are through to the quarterfinals of the ongoing FIFA Under-17 World Cup in Chile following a 6-0 demolition of Australia early on Thursday morning. A hat-trick from Victor Osiem and other goals from the trio of Kelechi Nikwali, Idiong Michael Essien as well as Samuel Chizueze ensured that Nigeria maintained their long-time dominance over the Aussies where, who rather were initially seen as a tricky side. Channel Africa's Tony Oban is in Lagos, Nigeria, and found this report. The Eagles will now battle Brazil for a place in the semi-finals. Nigeria's Eagles are the defending champions of the Under-17 World Cup, having won the last edition held in the United Arab Emirates. That's exactly what happened this morning. And I must tell you that as we were watching the finals and watching the matches, we could hear shouts of joy, you know, vibrating everywhere early this morning. On to local football news, Ajax Cape Town returned to training on Thursday, but a somber mood hangs over the club following the tragic death of defender Cecil Lolo in a car accident last weekend. The players were left devastated by the passing of their popular teammate and have more emotional days ahead of them with two memorial services and Lolo's funeral set for the 8th of November. Ajax successfully requested to have their two APSA premiership matches against Platinum Stars and Golden Arrows due to be played on, which were due to be played on Wednesday and this Saturday, this week respectively to be postponed. It means that their first match following Lolo's passing will be on Wednesday next week at home to Orlando Pirates and what will sure be another emotional milestone. There will be two memorial services for Lolo on Friday, the first, rather on Fridays the first, at his, near his home at the Tusong Hall in Gailija, with the second to be held at Ajax's Ingamva base. Lolo's funeral will be held in his hometown of Gandane near Butterworth in the Eastern Cape.
Now to swimming news, Cameron van der Berg wrapped up the Tokyo leg of the FINA Airweave Swimming World Cup with yet another gold medal on Thursday. Van der Berg's skill and determination saw him at the top of the medal podium in the 100-meter breaststroke final in a time of 59.97 seconds ahead of Australia's Jack Packard as well as Tokyo's Yoshiki Yamanaka. The final cluster of the FINA Airweave Swimming World Cup will be held on the 2nd and the 3rd of November in Doha and then will move to the United Arab Emirates from the 6th to the 7th of November. And finally, in rugby news, rugby World Cup finalists New Zealand and Australia know each other extremely well and can point to a win in their last two meetings. Australia ended a four-year winless run against their local rivals with a 27-19 victory in Sydney on the 8th of August, the All Blacks' third defeat since winning the 2011 World Cup. But a week later, New Zealand restored order in the shape of a 5-try 41-13 thrashing in Auckland. Statistically, New Zealand have been the best team at the tournament, scoring 36 tries and conceding four. Australia are second best in both categories, scoring 26 touchdowns while giving up five. Although they have, um, although rather they had a much tougher run in the final than the All Blacks, neither side conceded a try in last weekend's semi-final. And asked about their rivalry, All Blacks lock Samuel White lock says it doesn't matter. I think the the beauty of this World Cup, um, everything that's happened before, it means very little. Um, you know, it's all going to come down to 80 plus minutes uh, um, on this Saturday. So, sure, we're aware of uh, the the history between both sides, um, but um, it all comes down to the Saturday. So. Those are your sports news at the Sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest this hour from myself, Wanilinsi, producer Lebo Mona Mokholo, technical producer Dumela Mukwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS on plus 2782-332-5905. Take us, taking us to the top of the hour is Huma Sikela with Tanai.